right, let's uh, open up with a word of prayer and then we'll uh, dive in. Good to see you, Josh Feaster. How you doing? You feeling okay? Okay, fantastic. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being your people, God's people. Lord, you chose us from before the foundation of the world. Uh, you have plans for us into all eternity. Uh, billions and billions and billions of years from now, we will be perfected and glorified and enjoying you and worshiping you with all your people. This is amazing, Lord. Uh, we, we're just dust, uh, and yet you have eternal plans for us. Help us to feel the weightiness of that, uh, to, uh, Lord, to rejoice, to worship, to respond to what you've done for us, not just by nodding our heads and kind of thinking, isn't that interesting, what's for lunch, but God, to be uh, in awe. And uh, you know that our hearts are so often cold, and so we ask that you would use the teaching of your word, you would use the, the worship, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would, would cause us to focus on Jesus and not ourselves. And uh, we, Lord, are so thankful that we can ask for your help, and we can ask for your help with confidence because uh, your word tells us you love us, and because you've proven you have love us over and over and over again. And uh, Lord, make us into the church you want us to be. Help us not to be content with just kind of existing, but help us to, uh, Lord, press on towards the goal of Christ-likeness with everything we've got. And we uh, pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, all right, it's a privilege uh, to be together and uh, glad to see those of you who are able to make it today. Uh, we are continuing to talk about discipleship. If there's uh, a couple things that we have as goals this year, one of the goals would be to be a praying church. And so one of my long-term dreams is that uh, we are a church who just loves to pray together. Like It's like in our soul, we've got we've to be on our knees crying out to God together. Uh, that will be a sign of health, a real sign of health. What can we do? apart from God's strength, apart from God's help. So one of my prayers is that we would be a uh, praying church. And then another uh, prayer that we have is that we would be a disciple-making church. And um, really, when we talk about disciple-making, we're talking about biblical friendship. Biblical friendship and uh, discipleship go together because a big part of being a biblical friend is helping others grow and change. Uh, the best friends are the ones that help you be like Jesus. So that's what we're talking about. And specifically, we're asking, how do we do that? How do we make disciples? How do we, uh, how do we be biblical friends to one another? And one of the ways we've uh, summarized the process is through this quote in the book, Loving Messy People. And uh, I love this quote. He says, gospel care, and that's what we would call being a good friend is the God-exalting, grace-saturated art of loving another person through patiently knowing, sacrificially serving, truthfully speaking, and consistently applying the gospel in order to help them become more like Jesus. And that would be worth memorizing, actually, because each part of that statement is so helpful and important. But we've been focusing lately on the speaking truth to one another and consistently applying the gospel. In other words, we've been saying uh, that making disciples requires teaching. Being a good friend actually requires teaching and lots of different kinds of teaching, uh, formal and informal. Uh, last week, though, we focused on uh, informal teaching, the kind of uh, teaching that takes place most often in biblical friendships. And specifically, we talked about correcting. So that's a kind of informal teaching, correcting. And we're going to talk about that a little longer today as well, correcting. Uh, for one thing, because that's where so much good can happen. When you think about really changing, it helps so much to get into the specifics of someone's life and show, uh, it, not just 
for you to get into the specifics of their life, but for them to get into the specifics of your life and show you where you're going wrong and how you can do it differently. So uh, principles are nice, and we all need principles, but specifics are so helpful. Uh, you can really change uh, when somebody starts getting into the specifics of your life. So it's kind of like you can tell a husband, love your wife, that's a principle. And they're like, that's good, that's helpful. And often, there's not a lot of change that takes place. Uh, they can nod their heads and be like, yeah, love my wife, thanks, pastor. Uh, but they go away and, and kind of do the same things they always do did because it's so general. For change to take place, it often helps to get really specific. Like, okay, so this, you know, when you talk to your wife like that, that is not loving. And uh, this actually, talking to your wife like this, this would be loving. And so correction is really important because it's where a lot of change takes place. I always think this is funny when we talk about money, for example. So often when we talk about money, it's all principles, and everybody's like, that's nice, but we definitely don't talk about the specifics. And so often, a lot of change doesn't actually take place. So we want to talk about correction because this is so valuable and so profitable, but it's also uh, important for us to talk about because it's the place where a lot of damage is done. <laughs> it it kind of goes together, I guess. Because it's so powerful, it's like dynamite. And so uh, there is legalism sometimes when we start getting into the specifics. So much heresy happens with the application, actually. There's broken relationships. There's anger. There's conflict. There's how dare they. I can't believe they would say that to me. There's lots of hurt feelings. And so I think it's important for us to think about how do we do this well. If, uh, if we just get together in these little transformation groups and we talk principles all day long, that's, that's probably only going to go halfway. We want to get to the specifics, but we want to get to the specifics in a way that actually helps people and doesn't do damage to relationships. And uh, that is challenging. And one thing that makes it challenging is because we don't have a lot of good examples of doing it well in the culture around us. I think there are probably two options that most of us are familiar with. And the first option is don't say anything to them. I mean, you like say a lot to the people, like gossip with the people around you about them, but don't say anything to them about the specifics. That would be one option. And then the other option would be scream at them. Wait till you get so mad that uh, you just can't handle it anymore and you just kind of blow it out of proportion and they're not even a Christian, you know, because <laughs> uh, you're so upset about it. And so a lot of Christians are like that, act like that. You find they're... Uh, People who either they never tell you anything, or maybe they tell everybody else but not you, or sometimes they're people who are hyper about everything. And last week, you remember, we talked about a different approach. So if we're going to disciple well, we need a, a different approach. And so we looked at Proverbs, and we talked about a different approach. We need to correct, but there are three things that we need to think about as we correct. One is we need to make sure we're doing it for the right reasons. Two, we need to make sure we're doing it at the um, right time. And three, we need to make sure we're doing it in the right manner, which is a start. But even with all that, you know, I was thinking there's still going to be an objection or you could say a possible problem when it comes to correction. And uh, this is going to be a problem because a lot of times it, it's going to be in the nitty gritty that you're doing this correcting. And so you're going to be talking with other people about differences and specifics and how the Bible applies to different specific situations. And this is what a lot of people hate. A lot of people, this is why we don't, Talk about this, why we even set up cultures so that, you know, it's, you can't talk to people about things. Because people don't mind the generals, uh, but when you start getting specific, they, they sometimes hate it. And sometimes they hate it for bad reasons. They just don't want to change. And so you're messing with them because they're like, ah, I'd, I actually just like us to sit here and smile and like agree on the principles, but I, I want to go away and do what I've always done. That is a big problem in actual counseling. A lot of counseling and correction is like this dance where somebody wants to look like they want to change, but they don't actually want to change. <laughs> and so uh, they, they have to kind of open up a little bit for correction because they know this is the, it's part of the look. You've got to look like you need, want to change, 
But once you start getting in there, it's like, no, actually, I don't really want to uh, change. And so uh, sometimes people hate talking about the specifics for bad reasons just because they want to do what they want to do. And sometimes they hate it for good reasons uh, because it's not helpful correction. And they've just been burned so many times with people like getting out of control with the specifics. And, um, and so what happens for a lot of people is they're basically against any, time of, uh, against any type of correction. If they're in a friendship and they have a difference and they think the other person is wrong, what do they do? For many people, they're like, I'll tell you the one thing I don't do. I don't talk about it. Even in marriages, sometimes it's like this. If there's an impasse, if we can tell that we're going to disagree, we drop that issue, and we never talk about it again. We just sort of be upset at each other inside about it for the rest of our lives, but we don't go there. Once we know we're going to disagree in the specifics, we don't go there anymore. And so a lot of people are like, you know, this is not something that happens in real friendships. When it comes to the specifics, we don't, we don't talk about it. The best kinds of friends are the ones that never get into the specifics. That's the way people sometimes think. And they sometimes even have a Bible verse, actually, that they use for that. They say, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. And so that's almost like a conversation stopper when it comes to the specifics. It's like, okay, you know what? Judge not that you be not judged. And the first time you hear that, it's kind of powerful. Like, you're so judgmental. You're so judgmental. And it's powerful because who wants to be judgmental? Uh, maybe there's some people, but I haven't met them. We don't, most of us don't want to be judgmental. But of course, we know that there's more to quoting Jesus than just quoting Jesus, obviously. So you have to correctly explain what Jesus means for it to be truly powerful and so if you haven't, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, because that's where this verse is found. And I want us to look at what Jesus says here, because it is important, actually. There is no question that Matthew chapter 7 is helpful and important when it comes to correcting others. Jesus has something really important for us to say, uh, uh, important to say to us as Christians. Uh, there's a big warning here that a lot of people have gotten wrong through the years, so we need to hear it. And, and yet it doesn't mean what people sometimes think it means. In fact, I know it can't. When Jesus says, do not judge, it definitely does not mean that you're never allowed to think anyone is wrong or say someone's wrong. That's definitely not what it means. And we know that it definitely doesn't mean that for a couple reasons. One, because that would be an impossible command to follow. So Jesus tells us to do hard things, but he doesn't tell us to do absurd things. And never thinking anyone is wrong and never being allowed to say that someone's wrong would be completely nonsensical. So, I mean, say you're a teacher and a student hands in a paper, you mark some of his answers wrong, and he comes back to you and says, you can't do this, you can't mark any of my answers wrong, who are you to judge? How, how do you respond? You're like, that doesn't even make any sense. Or... Take an actual judge. Someone goes to a judge, and the judge says, okay, it's obvious you stole. This is your punishment. And the criminal's like, well, that's nice. That's your opinion. But I can't accept it because it's wrong to judge. How can you say I'm a thief? That makes no sense. I remember hearing a story R.C. Sproul told. He was a young pastor. There was a mom in his church who asked if he could speak to her grown-up son. And so the son was an adult. But this mom was upset with something the son did, and he wanted she wanted R.C. Sproul to speak with him. And when R.C. met with him, it was obvious the young man was angry. And uh, so R.C. asked him, what are you so angry about? And the man said, I'm angry with my mom. She's always trying to push religion in my face. And I just want her to leave me alone. And so R.C. said, okay, that's uh, interesting. Uh, tell me a little bit about your view of life. How do you think people should live their life? And he said, I just think we should let people do whatever they want to do. Let them live life their own way. And then R.C. Sproul looked at him and said, if you really believe that, then I don't know why you're so upset with your mom. If that's the way she wants to live, she wants to push religion in your face, then why don't you just let her do what she wants to do? And of course, R.C. was uh, teasing him, but he wanted, to see, he wanted him to see that even just saying don't judge is a judgment. When someone says to you, don't judge, you're talking about sin, and they say to you, don't judge, what they're doing is judging you. 
They're saying you are wrong because you're judging. So I know whatever Jesus means when he says here in Matthew 7, 1, don't judge, he can't mean that you're never allowed to look at someone's behavior, make a discernment, and recognize it as wrong. And really, can you even imagine trying to live life that way, if that's what Jesus meant? Nobody lives life that way. If you're saying, don't tell me what's wrong, because that's judging, you're kind of a hypocrite because you don't live life that way. Imagine you, you pay somebody $5,000 to fix your car, and you go to pick up your car, and he didn't do anything. The only thing he did was take your money. He didn't even try to fix your car. What do you do? Uh, you, you don't go away and say, well, I don't want to judge. We, we know, we all know, that whatever Jesus means when he says don't judge, he can't mean it's always wrong to look at someone's behavior, recognize that it's wrong, and even confront it. In fact, what's funny is we know that even from this passage itself. So let me read it, read it all the way through. He says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you, which is funny, I think, because calling someone a dog kind of sounds a little like a judgment, you know? Um, and if you're not going to give the dogs what is holy, to even obey that command, what do you have to do first? You have to determine that they're dogs, so you have to judge. I mean, I'm saying if you look at this very passage that people go to to say you can't say to someone that they're wrong, Jesus at the end is saying you absolutely have to recognize that certain people are wrong, and that has to impact the way that you deal with them. When Jesus says do not judge, he can't mean that. So what does he mean? What does he mean? He does mean there is a wrong way to respond to the differences we see in other people. And that is by becoming this hard, critical, bitter, proud, mean person. If you want to put it in a very simple way, uh, there are a lot of people who are different than us. There are a lot of people who are doing things that we think are wrong. But in the middle of that, we as Christians, just, we can't just go in there and go off on people. There's a wrong way to respond. And first, we have to avoid spiteful criticism. Look at verse 1 again. He says, judge not. And the, and the key is, what does the word judge mean? Because it doesn't mean whatever we want it to mean. What does Jesus mean when he says don't judge? What does he not want us to do? And the word itself is used a lot of different ways in the New Testament. So the best way to tell what the word means is by looking at the context. And that helps because Jesus explains what he means by judging if you look down at verse 3. Judge not, okay, give me an illustration. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? A log is a big beam, the kind of beam they would use in building a house. So it's like this huge piece of wood in a person's eye, and yet they're not worried about that because they're looking at the piece of dust in someone else's eye. They're hypercritical, in other words. I mean, that's the only way you can do that. They can spot the smallest problem, and they make it huge. That is judging. There's another passage where Jesus talks about judging that helps. It's over in Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Uh, and you can just, I guess, listen to this. But Jesus says, judge not, and you will not be judged, which is the same thing he said in uh, Matthew. But there's an extra part here, if I can turn in my Bible to it. There's an extra part in Luke chapter 6, verse 37. But, and here's the extra part. He says, condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And that's not something totally different than judging. That's more like an explanation of judging. Judging is condemning. It's not forgiving. It's making a big deal out of other people's sins and acting like you're the judge, you're the jury, you're the executioner. There's no listening. There's no wanting them to be right. There's just attacking Another passage that helps is James, and James was Jesus' half-brother, and I think reading James, a lot of times you find James talking about the same things Jesus did. And in James 4.11, James says, 
Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, which is basically what it means to, to judge. He says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, so he just said, this is what I mean by speaking against a brother, it's judging your brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge, which is a lot of words, but what James is saying is there's a person who doesn't really think much about his own need to obey God's law, like having to love his neighbor. Instead, what's important is attacking everyone he thinks is doing something that's wrong. It's not just to say someone is wrong judging, it's to want them to be wrong, to not be willing to show any grace or mercy. A lot of this has to do with attitude, actually. And maybe I can get a little more specific, because one thing I found is most people who are judging don't think they're judging. So we have to think about it a little more carefully. I've, I've very rarely met a, judge, a judgmental person who will admit in that specific case that they're being hypercritical. Uh, usually what people will say is, I know I can be hypercritical. This is, we're so good at this. I've just noticed it so much lately. We'll put out there, we always put out there, maybe because we've been in church, we always put out there our defense so somebody can't correct us. We're like, I know that I can be hypercritical, but this is the one time, I'm, what I'm about to tell you, is the one time when I'm not being hypercritical. <laughs> so I know you can't tell me that maybe I'm being hypercritical, because I know I can be hypercritical, but that doesn't apply here, because I've already figured everything out, because I can see myself perfectly, which I'm not trying to be hypercritical, but that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Judge not means be really careful not to judge unfairly. And one place, of course, where it's easy to do that is when you don't know what you're claiming to know. So, for example, people's motives. I almost wish I could make a law, don't judge people's motives. Uh, or at least be very careful when you're talking about people's motives. Because the truth is, most of the time, you do not know why people are doing what they're doing. You think you do, but you don't. You're not God. There's no way you can know someone else's motives unless they tell you. And the truth is, a lot of times, they don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. And so you can ask, and you probably should ask, questions that will draw out the heart, and that's good. But if you're going in there all the time and directly rebuking people for their motives because you think you know their motives, or if you're going around telling people that you know why someone was doing something, and honestly, even if you're just telling yourself that, you are judging. Judge not means don't come to quick negative conclusions about someone without working at gathering information. This is from Proverbs. Proverbs says, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. And what's funny is a lot of times people who are supposed to be wise are, are proving that they're being foolish and shameful because they're the ones who are the quickest to act like they can make judgments without listening. We do it all the time. We're walking through a grocery store. We see someone who doesn't look the way we think they should look, and we come to this judgment about them, even though we don't know them. We ask no questions. We've got no real information. We just think we know. That's judging. Someone has a problem, and we go to our family, and, and we say, I know why they have that problem. It's because of this and this and this, even though we've never asked them even one question about what was going on. We have a conversation with something, someone and they say something that doesn't sound quite right to us and so we go out and say, they said this and this is what they meant when they said that. When we don't know that's what they meant by that at all because we didn't even care enough to take the time and ask them, why did they say what they said? You know, that sounded funny to me when you said that. What did you actually mean? Why, what, were you, what was motivating you to say that? Judge not means don't say someone is sinning just because they're not keeping your particular uh, family tradition or your cultural preference. There's a lot of sin in the Bible, and we can confront on that, but we waste a lot of time confronting people about things that are not even in the Bible. Sin is when someone disobeys God's word, and that's what you can confront authoritatively on. But beyond that, once you lift your head up from the Bible, you need to be careful that you haven't added your own little rule to the Bible. I think about the Pharisees. They were masters in that. They took what was in the Bible. They added all their rules and regulations to the Bible, sometimes even from good motives, actually. 
or at least what seemed like maybe good motives, and then they became way more concerned about their rules and regulations than they were what was actually in the Bible, like a lot of people today. And so it's challenging because there is specific stuff that we have to talk to people about. There's a lot of specific stuff that we have to talk about, and I'm not saying that we don't talk about that stuff. And there are a lot of principles in the Bible that do speak to a lot of issues that we don't always think they do. So of course, like they didn't have any cars in the Bible, but that doesn't mean you can't say, well, because there's no verse about having a driver's license, then I don't have to have a driver's license, and you can't correct me about that. No, there are a lot of verses that do apply to that issue. And so this isn't about turning off your brain or stopping being serious about holiness. It's just about realizing the further you get away from the Bible, from being able to put your finger on a verse in the Bible, the more close you are getting to like dangerous ground where you are uh, disobeying this command not to judge. Judge not means don't judge people's motives. Don't come to quick negative conclusions without gathering information. Don't say someone is sinning just because they're not following your particular tradition. It means basically don't be, this is really what it means, don't be so much harder on everyone else than you are on yourself. And I think that's what Jesus is really getting at. Someone has written about this verse. They said, it means one should not judge others more harshly or by a different standard than one uses to judge oneself. And so uh, when I do something wrong, I've got a million different excuses for myself. And so do you. I know that sometimes people are like, but I'm so hard on myself. I'm so hard on myself. But most people aren't hard on themselves, really. They're like pretend hard on themselves. It's a very rare person who's actually hard on themselves for actual true biblical uh, problems for biblical reasons. If you really were hard on yourself, you would change. Um, so there's something that we get out of like pretending to be hard on ourselves. And proof of that is when someone comes to you to confront you about an actual problem, you come up with an explanation almost right away. You give yourself every benefit of the doubt. And so do I. But when it comes to others, that's the problem. It's like there's no room for any other explanation. We need to correct, and we need to correct humbly. So how do we relate to people who are different than us, who we think are wrong? And maybe next week we'll have a longer time for discussion. But Jesus says, do not judge. That's important. But obviously he doesn't mean we can't ever think someone's wrong or we can't ever say they're wrong because that would be an impossible way to live. And it wouldn't be helpful. We need that in our relationships and in our transformation groups. We're going to have to do correction. But he does mean we can't become these hypercritical people. And this is a big deal to Jesus. One, it's a big deal. Hyper, being hypercritical is a very big deal. It's just like, it's like a mega issue. It's kind of connected to so many other issues when, you meet a hyper, when you're being hypercritical. It's connected to a lot of other issues, like a failure to really appreciate what we're going to talk about in our um, Sunday message <laughs> coming up in the worship service, justification by faith alone. It's connected. It's like, it's like a smoke alarm. And one reason it's a big issue is because it's sin. So it's sin. Jesus says, judge not that, and that's a purpose statement, that you be not judged. I remember uh, seeing a mom just scream at her kid for screaming at another kid. And I was like, do you realize that what she's doing is wrong? Yeah, but what you're doing is wrong as well. And obviously, when you judge, you judge because you think you're right and the other person's wrong. But you already know that hypercritical spirit is in and of itself sin. If you've got an unloving attitude, you don't want their best. If you're judging motives, assuming and saying they're sinning when they're not sinning, you're violating 1 Corinthians 13, you're violating Ephesians 5, uh, 4, 31 and 32, you're violating Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It's funny, when we judge, we feel so right when we're being hypercritical. Anybody questions us, we're like, hey, we are people who are serious about the truth. But listen, being hypercritical like that, judging motives, assuming, not gathering information, not showing mercy, that is sin, and that's serious sin. God judges it. That's one reason this is foolish. Another reason, honestly, is that it comes back on you. Uh, look at verse 2. And verse 2 is a little hard. I'm not totally sure 
in verse 2, when Jesus says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, whether he's talking about God's judgment or man's. So that's a, a legitimate question for me and for commentators. Scholars smarter than me, they go back and forth. And I can see both, actually. Because if you look at the Old Testament, you'll see that God often judges people according to the sins they commit. So, like, you're vengeful on people, so people will be vengeful on you. He's fair, God. And Jesus had this idea in mind earlier when he says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And James says, judgment will be merciless to the merciless. So this could be talking about God's judgment, but it also could be talking about people's because the way you relate to people is often exactly how they relate to you. Like if you're always attacking people, guess what? Don't be surprised if other people are attacking you. You're like, why are people so hard on me? A lot of times it's because you're so hard on them. It's like a vicious circle. People almost, it's, it's like they create the world in which they live. <laughs> and so sometimes even when you're talking to someone, you're like, ah, oh, man, you really are living in a different world than I'm living in. And so I can see why what I'm saying sounds like so impossible for you to live, but it's because you created this hypercritical world that you live in by being so hypercritical. And it's uh, this ugly circle because when you're so focused on other people's problems, it distracts you from dealing with your own, which is uh, a third reason why God doesn't want us to be hypercritical. It's sin, it comes back on you, and having a log in your own eye is not a good thing, and what's worse is having a log in your own eye and not noticing it. But that's what a judgmental spirit does. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 3. He says, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Uh, being unmerciful is a big deal because when someone is consistently so hard on other people, thinking the worst about other people, gossiping about other people, always being so quick to notice all the problems in other people, that's a symptom. So like I was saying earlier, it's a smoke alarm. There's something that's missing in your understanding of the gospel. And it might be that you don't know your own sinfulness. Not really. John Newton once said, whoever is truly humbled will not be easily angry, will not be quick to attack others, will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners, knowing that if there be a difference, it is grace that has made it, and that he has the seeds of every evil in his own heart. We deserve hell. That's what the Bible says. And real Christians believe that, and yet sometimes we forget it. We know it intellectually, of course, but we don't feel it. We feel like we're actually pretty good. And when we feel pretty good about ourselves, apart from Jesus, usually we're pretty hard on other people. Um, if you're harsh... It might be that you're not appreciating God, uh, your own sinfulness. It is. And it might be that you don't understand God's goodness, God's patience. When I start appreciating how patient God has been with me, then I'm going to be patient with others. I was thinking, imagine having someone live in your house, eat your food. You've been nothing but good to them. Like, every day... 365 days a year, you are showing them mercy, but every day, 365 days a year, they slap you in the face, like literally. At some point in the day, they just come into the room and they full-on slap you in the face. It's not like a little soft tap on the face. It's, they like pull their hand back. They just hit you in the face as hard as they can. Now, I'm 47, so imagine a person like that did that to me every day for 47 years. That would be pretty terrible. What if that person wanted to change, though? And so every time they did that, they were sorry. And they were like, I hate this. I hate this. I don't want to slap you in the face anymore. But the next day, they get up. And at some point in the day, they slap me. And then they're sorry again. And imagine, just imagine, I keep forgiving them and loving them. And they, they go out one day, and they're getting on the bus. And someone accidentally bumps them, and they absolutely freak out. They're like, how could you do that to me? 
What kind of person are you? And yet, that's nothing. That's like literally nothing. That's zero compared to what you and I have done to God over and over and over and over and over again. And yet he's so patient with us, which is why not being patient, not being merciful, is like having this massive log in your eye. And I think it's such a contradiction. That's why so often kids that grow up in homes like this, that where they claim to be Christians, but this is the actual home, it's so confusing when they get older. Because it's such a contradiction. It's such a, it's like, Say the gospel, say the gospel, deny the gospel, deny the gospel, deny the gospel, deny the gospel. It's such a contradiction that it really gets confusing once you get older and you're trying to figure everything out. Because it's clear you're not, when you're living like this, you're not seeing something you really need to see. It's not a small issue. Oh, yeah, I'm a little bit critical. I'm just, this, this, this is my way. I think it's probably, in, you know, America, we're probably like, uh, it's in my brain, I got a syndrome, critical person syndrome. No, it needs to be dealt with. But the problem is because you're so focused on what you see is wrong with everyone else around you, you're distracted from what is wrong with you. It may be that those issues need to be dealt with. It may be that you even have a point, but you're not even in a place to know that because you've got this log in your eye and you're certainly not in a place to do anything about it because you've got this like forest growing out of your eye. So what should we do? If we're going to have profitable discipleship groups, we have to correct. We know that we can't spend our whole life just ignoring the problems we see. That's even why we want to get in these transformation groups, uh, because we want people in our lives like that. Uh, but we have to be careful that we don't go after people in the wrong way. So what do we do? And this is really simple, but Jesus gives us some simple steps to take that are really important. First. Deal with your own sin, and especially your own harsh, unloving attitude. He says, you hypocrite, (laughs) which sounds like a judgment too, right? You hypocrite. First, verse 5, take the log out of your own eye. So in general, before you go to deal with someone else and what you see in their life, or even not just deal, because a lot of people don't deal with it. They just think mean thoughts. So before you start thinking all these mean thoughts, or gossiping about that person, which you shouldn't do anyway. But uh, as you're, you're tempted to think mean thoughts or gossip about that person or go to that person, you need to take some time in prayer asking God to reveal what's wrong in your life. And for me, what Jesus says here is such a warning because to think that anyone could, could see a spot in someone else's life while having a log in their eye. Like if you literally saw that, you would say that is impossible. You have a log in your eye, but you can see a spot in someone else's life. Uh, that, that's, that, that seems like it would be impossible, but it's not impossible. We are like absolute professionals at seeing what is wrong in other people's lives when there is a massive issue in our life. Sometimes you'll find the people with the deepest problems consider themselves the best counselors. Like they've got so many opinions. (laughs) Their life is so out of control because we're so good at this. Uh, We're so good at seeing spots. It's like almost like if there was an Olympics for seeing spots in people's eyes with log in your own, we would all be gold medalists. It would be a really tough competition. And, and, And that's a warning because you know that's true You can't just trust your own heart when somebody else is bothering you. Um, You have to stop when it's really starting to bother you and that tape starts going in your, or CD or MP3 starts going over and over in your mind. You have to stop and you have to get on your knees and say, God, give me, please give me the gift of humility. And then you start to examine yourself. And this this should be a pattern in your life. You need regular times of self-examination. And what does that mean? It means you look at yourself in light of God's word. You take a passage like Galatians 5, 19 to 24, where it lists these sins. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And you evaluate your life. God, am I sinning sexually? Am I watching things I shouldn't watch? Am I wanting things I shouldn't want? 
Am I putting anything above you in my life? Do I have this bitterness in my heart? Am I fighting with a lot of people? Are there others I'm angry at because they have what I want? Am I getting mad at people on a regular basis? And on and on. And when you see that there, you repent. And uh, what does it mean to repent? It means you confess it as sin. You don't excuse it. You don't blame others for it. You don't minimize it. You call it what it is. God, this is serious. And if you don't feel like it's serious, you ask God to help you feel that it's serious. And you call your sin what God calls it. And you ask him to forgive you and, you, and, and to change you. And you begin to work at changing in those areas. Or, you know, you could, that's the negative version. You could look at verse 22 of Galatians 5 and do it positively. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so you stop and you look at your life and you say, God, am I actively, sacrificially caring for people? Am I consistently thankful and consistently joyful and consistently peaceful? And again, and on and on, and you ask those questions, and when you're not, you repent. That's part of taking the log out of your own eye. You don't just assume you're right. You slow down and examine yourself in light of God's word. You repent, and, and because examining yourself is so hard, when it's a really big issue, it's smart to ask people for help. You might even go to the person you see a speck in and ask, is there anything you see in my life that's a problem? So it's really actually good when you go to correct someone else to ask them to correct you first not as a means of manipulation, but just as a means of help. Like, um, if first of all, if I'm not willing to be corrected that by them, then why would I expect that they would be willing to be corrected by me? That's kind of hypocritical. And then they might actually see the log in my own eye, which will slow me down and help me to talk to them correctly. Or if you're not going to go to them, go to someone who's godly, and you give them free reign to speak with you. And it's helpful, you know, because sometimes we assume people will correct us. Um, but there are a lot of people that it's hard to correct others. And uh, they've been burned so many times when they've gone to correct others that they're really slow to say anything, even if they're like, you know, you've got like something massive all over your face or you just like ate kale and you've got like kale all over your teeth. And they're like with you that for hours and they never say anything. There are people like that, you know, when it comes to like actual spiritual issues in your life. And so it's good sometimes to give them free reign and just be like, hey, I know some of it might be your opinion or just things you, you think, but you don't have all the evidence, but please just, just bring it, bring it. Um, is there anything you see in my life that you're concerned about? And when they say something, if you've, set, if you've asked for that help, you know, at least open the door a crack. A lot of times with people, they have to like find the key, unlock the door, you know, like burst into your, ha into your kitchen to be able to say anything to you. So try to just like leave, be hospitable, leave that door open to your heart so they don't have to do so much work to get in there. And then when they say that to you, don't be like, get out of my house. <laughs> you know, like argue and defend. And uh, it's, that's going to be hard for a lot of us because it's so instinctive. Um, but, and, and even small defenses. Instead, um, say, well, this is what I wanted them to do, and thank them, and then go home and think about what they said and pray about it. So that's first. What do you do? You take the opportunity to deal with uh, the issues in your life, but you don't stop there. Second, you go and try to help the person with the speck in their eye. And um, one of the things you often hear is, you, I can't talk to people about their sin because I have my own sin, and it sounds humble because people are like, I'm just a sinner. I don't want to pretend like I'm not. But if people who are sinners could never confront other people, then none of us could ever confront anyone about anything because we're all sinners. And so being a sinner is not an excuse for not talking to people about their sin. If you know you're in sin, then deal with it so that you can help other people. That's what Jesus says. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eyes, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. So sometimes not getting in there is actually an excuse not to deal with the stuff in your own life. Because you're like, oh, you know what, I'm just a sinner. And what you really mean is like, I don't want to change. Because <laughs> I know if I'm going to go to confront them, then I actually have to work on this. And I don't want to work on this. I kind of like doing it the way I do it. 
And uh, so it's really kind of a nice excuse. And so Jesus won't let us have that excuse. He's like, no, 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 no. Deal with that log in your eye. I mean, if you ever have a, had a speck in your eye, it's not nice, right? Having a log in your eye would be much worse, I'm sure. But still, even if you just have a speck in your eye, it's not something you want to live your whole life with. Um, so once you get the log out of your eye, then you can see more clearly, and you'll be able to tell if that person really does have something you need to talk about with them. Um, and you're going to be better able to help them get the speck out. Um, I know that we sometimes think the best place to be in life is to be in a place where nobody ever tells me that I'm wrong. That's like the dream for a lot of people. They're like, what I want is to be left alone. But that's a terrible place to be in life because you know what it means? It means you are alone. <laughs> Imagine you're messing up your life and you've got nobody in your life who cares enough about you to actually say, you know what, you're messing up your life. That is a seriously lonely place to be. You don't want that. We don't want that as a church. That's, that's why we're starting these transformation groups, just to help us with that. What you want is people who love you enough to help you with the logs and specks you get in your eye, but who know how to do it the way Jesus tells us to here. How do we live in a world where people do different things? How do we be a church where people are doing things that we think are wrong, we have to be careful not to become hypercritical because we know that's foolish, but we want to love each other enough to want to help. So first, we take some time to examine ourselves. Second, we try to prepare ourselves to try to help the other person by dealing with our log. And one way we do that is by third, judging the people that we're dealing with and figuring out, are these the kind of people that we can help or not? And which is the last thing Jesus says in verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And that's pretty tough. Jesus is calling some people dogs and pigs. Um, this is not farming advice, obviously. This is life advice. And uh, generally speaking, dogs and pigs in the Bible are unclean animals and represent unbelievers. But I don't think just unbelievers in general here. I think these are the people that Paul calls dogs in Philippians, hardened people who know the truth but have rejected it and aren't open at all to changing. They're contentious, they're spiteful, they're angry, and no matter how gently you try to help them with the speck in their eye, they take advantage of that opportunity to turn around and attack you. And so that's probably why we have church discipline, honestly, to help us uh, as a church make that evaluation. Uh, it's not because we actually don't love people. It's because we love people so much, and yet there are some people who have come to the place in their life where correction isn't helpful. They need discipline. So Jesus says, how do you relate to people who are different than you that you think are wrong? There are times when you need to get in there and speak, but first, make sure you're not just an angry, discontent, proud, difficult person, because that's sin. It creates problems for others and problems for you. Second, you put that away, you put on humble self-examination, you get yourself ready to help the person by dealing with your own sin first, and then before you go in there to help them with theirs, make sure that you've discerned the kind of person that you're dealing with, because it may be that there are some people you're not going to be able to help, and you're just going to have to get on your knees over and over and over and, and pray. But we uh, are praying, we're asking God, uh, part of why we're starting transformation groups is that God would give us the kinds of relationships where uh, we have people in our lives who talk about principles but also talk about the specifics. Um, but would you pray that as we talk about the specifics that we uh, listen to Jesus and we avoid becoming the kind of church that's just hard and has opinions about everything while actually being the kind of church that does talk about things that need to be talked about. And so next week, when we uh, gather together again, we'll have uh, time in our groups. So I think we'll, have, we'll take most of our time or all of our time next week to be in our groups because it's been a couple weeks and we have a lot to uh, discuss that we haven't discussed. But I think this is important enough an issue, how to correct and how to correct well, to take some time to talk about it like this. I was going to try to split it up into uh, 
too, but I, I didn't know how to do that without having to do too much work next week summarizing what we did uh, this week. But I don't know. Does anybody have any thoughts or questions? We've got just a couple minutes. Um, any thoughts or corrections about what was said or, or corrections? Any thoughts or ideas? Corrections, I guess I should be able to take it. But any uh, thoughts or ideas or things they're wondering about when it comes to this or, you know, problems they've seen when it comes to this? Uh, that we um, have a lot of correcting to do. It wouldn't be very loving if, as parents, we don't correct our children because they don't come, they come into the world fools, you know? Uh, They'll put anything into their mouth. I mean, they're just foolish in a lot of ways, not just physically, but also spiritually. And so one of the ways we love our children is by uh, teaching them how to live life in a way that makes sense. And that's going to involve a lot of Proverbs kind of teaching specifics. But it, we uh, certainly, even with young children, we have to be careful that we do it in a way uh, that honors the gospel and so and, honor, and is wise and so we have to be uh, careful, even as parents, you know, when we're dealing with specific issues, why does this bother me so much? Um, we have to be good at shouting where the Bible shouts and whispering where the Bible whispers. Um, we have to be careful not to use God and the Bible as a, a means to manipulate our children to do what we want. And so if it's really a biblical issue that we... Um, that we are concerned about it because God is concerned about it, and then also that when we talk about non-biblical issues, that it's clear to our kids uh, this is a non-biblical issue. It's just the way we function in our family. And uh, uh, sometimes I have said to my children, you know, Dad is weird about this. I don't exactly know why this is a quirk. In, in I don't know why I like it this way exactly. I just do, and because we're in a family... It really will help me if you uh, do it this way. We try to be careful, you know, when we had rules to why, why is this a rule? You know, once it's a rule, then it becomes a biblical issue because they have to obey their parents in the Lord. Um, so uh, try to be careful not to have too many rules. When you're working as a teacher or something like that, part of your job is to actually correct, obviously. Um, but I think... Uh, the attitude in which you do it, uh, patience, and um, is obviously going to be representative of the gospel and knowing when to, to get serious and when to um, recognize that it's just going to be a process. Uh, it's good. I'll think about that some more. With kids, I often think, imagine you had somebody who was following you 24 hours a day and correcting everything you did. So you like put your Bible here. They're like, nope, please put the Bible here. You, um, you know, your, your pants are like this. Like, no, please keep your pants like, like this. That would get, you know, if you had a manager like that, that would get a little tiring after a while. So it's good to like recognize they're, they're kids, but they're also human beings. So like um, if I'm going to be doing a lot of correcting to realize, ah, oh, I would probably get a little tired of that, and I'm old, and I know the wisdom of being corrected, so I just got to be wise about how I, how I do it, what can they handle, how much have I already, kind of, sometimes it's hard to, it's almost like a vibe, like an atmosphere of grace, it's hard to always put your finger on it, but it's like this, this atmosphere is so tight that there's not a space to to be a human being who's four years old, five years old, trying to f never dealt with a conflict before, you know. Um, no. I thought I saw another question. Yeah. Yeah, that question was uh, in uh, relationships where correction is so, uh, like it doesn't happen, um, and it's always almost automatically seen as ungracious if you correct. How do you work at developing, changing, changing the approach? Is, that's basically a bad way to ask, to summarize the question. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very good thing. Yeah. 
Okay, so it's not always seen as exactly a bad thing, but it's just it's just not really done. Um, okay, it's always it's good when somebody asks a question. I guess in general, that's a good uh, example that it's good to repeat their question back to them, because if you can't repeat their question back to them in a way that they would recognize, then you're probably not going to give them an answer uh, that is appropriate um, to their question, but. One thing just to remember, I guess, in general, is that most people aren't used to correction, a good correction. So most people aren't used to biblical, gracious correction. Um, if they're corrected, most people in the world, it's because somebody's critical <laughs> and angry enough to say something. It's just not a lot. Of, it's just a kind of rare thing, gracious correction. So whenever I go to anybody... I have to realize that I'm dealing with a human that probably is going to struggle with being proud and not like this, and two, is, is probably going to assume a lot of things about what's motivating me to correct them because they haven't seen many people motivated to correct for actually God-honoring reasons. And so uh, then I, I, try to, I realize I have to kind of find ways to do some teaching even before I correct in a way that's not like teachy. And what I mean by that is uh, to set up the conversation with a lot of um, uh, explanations of how for them I am, uh, why I'm, how much I love them. To, I, I want that to kind of be the atmosphere. Even in our home, we try to make that an atmosphere. That's part of why you do so much encouragement all the time is because you know when you go to correct, people start to think you're against them and they're really tempted to think you're against them and that you're just doing it because you like things the way you like them. So you do a lot of encouragement so that when it comes time to correct, you know there's going to come a time to correct, that they have so much evidence already that that can't be. So when their mind starts being funny and being like, oh, dad just is like, doesn't like me or dad's upset, they're like, dad like for 364 days has, has been encouraging me. So that's like uh, that's nonsensical for me to think that because there's no way Dad has proven that he would cut off his right arm for me. You know, he's so for me. So then that helps them take the correction more um, in a way that you mean it. So one is uh, to lean into that graciousness, but then also uh, um, do some work at teaching in terms of uh, the reason why I correct is not hopefully because I'm just not liking this the way it is. It's actually because I love you so much and not just assuming that they know that because a lot of people are not going to be thinking that when you come to them. And then another, you know, question is just like, why don't we, you know, have, has anybody else ever noticed that we don't to try to create the atmosphere when you can have conversations and ask, is the, why don't we, or is there, I feel like it's like this. Do you feel like it's like this? Is there um, something about the way that I correct that uh, is unhelpful, or is it just correction in general? Because I can assume that it's correction in general, they just hate it, but it actually might be the way that I do it. And so I'm like thinking, ah, these people don't like correction, but they just don't like correction from me for some reason that I gotta deal with. I got some log in my eye, or they think I have a log in my eye that I don't notice. So there's a lot of investigation and then prayer. I mean, everything we do is impossible. <laughs> so changing, changing a family environment to uh, be a place where there's gracious correction is definitely impossible. So I don't think there's like a three-step, necessarily a three-step plan as much as um, we need to do it on our knees, crying out to God, please help us become a place that's really helpful. Because it would be neat if this happened in our families well, because there are people that we should know are for us and uh, know us, actually do know a lot of the stuff that other people don't see. So they can get into some of the specifics because they have a lot of the information, actually. Um, I sometimes, yeah, it seems like Satan likes to set it up so that the people who could help us the most are the ones that culturally or whatever are not, it's just not normal to help us. So it's all these people that barely know us that somehow it's okay for them to 
they're the ones who end up doing it, whereas the people that really do know us uh, do it in the wrong way or don't do it at all. So, But hopefully we're a church that's learning how to, to do that, and that's probably a good question to ask uh, in a smaller setting where you can think about a lot of the specifics of what it actually would look like. Thanks, guys. This is real life. I, li- I, like, uh, I like it, but I guess we're over our time now. So if you have more questions about that, b- uh, bring them up. If you have pushback, like that doesn't make sense, you know, as we're, that's part of the, the um, benefit of talking about some of the specifics, moving from principle to specifics, because you're like, okay, we need to nuance that a little better or think more carefully about that for us to really obey Jesus in uh, real life. Let's take a few minutes, love each other, uh, ask that God will bless our worship service.